I want to take a moment before the show to let all of you know about a new horror anthology that I just read and really enjoyed. The book is called Shredded, and uh, that title is a double entendre because this is a collection of body horror stories about sports and fitness. So double meaning of shredded there. Now, the stories are awesome. Uh, These include pieces about a murdery yoga cult, also why you really shouldn't use performance-enhancing drugs, and also why you definitely should wear a helmet. I really hope that someday we'll have an opportunity to cover at least one of the stories in Shredded over on Elder Sign someday, but until then, I hope that you'll grab a copy for yourself. I've put a link in the show notes to make that easy for you, but of course you can also order the book from your local bookshop. Again, the book is called Shredded, and I hope you grab a copy today. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are going to be talking about Haruki Murakami's 2002 short story, Super Frog Saves Tokyo. We read this as, as a translation by Jay Rubin. And this story was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters. And as we always do, I want to say thank you for that. This is definitely a nomination that is uh, pushing us into some new territory, which I'm super grateful for. Yeah, I I really love this story. I'm a big fan of Murakami, though that doesn't mean I've read everything he has to offer. We'll talk about that in our discussion. But this story has everything Murakami in it, if you know what that means. It's got, I don't know, a male protagonist who's in a somewhat magical situation. And uh, we should talk about what that situation is. Yes. And I think we're going to be talking about magic and magical realism quite a bit during the the course of this episode. Kataguri found a giant frog waiting for him in his apartment. It was powerfully built, standing over six feet tall on its hind legs. A skinny little man, no more than five foot three, Kataguri was overwhelmed by the frog's imposing bulk. Call me frog said the frog in a clear, strong voice. And that's the opening of Super Frog Saves Tokyo. It's it's a strange premise. It's a, it's a funny juxtaposition and also straight to the point, which is, I think, how I would characterize the whole story. So let's get into it. This story, as you can tell from the title, it, it takes place in Tokyo, and uh, it's set there in 1995. Kataguri is the assistant chief of the lending division of the Shinjuku branch of the Tokyo Security Trust Bank. And that sounds fancy, but what it really amounts to is that he is a loan collector, and he leads a rather violent life. Uh, What he does is intimidate people who are behind on their loan payments. And this includes navigating a world of different types of organized criminals. Kataguri is also ugly. He's generally unsociable, Uh, he has no friends, no family, and he lives completely alone. A frog is just that. He's a giant frog who can talk, and more or less is a person just like the rest of us, except that, you know, he's a frog. Now, the conversation that Frog and Category have is pretty hilarious, but I'm going to really essentialize it. I'm going to boil it down to just the facts. I will let Brandon give it a bit more flavor. That's just how we are in the real world anyway, so just (laughs) defaulting to type here. But Frog is here in Tokyo because in a few days, there is going to be a massively destructive earthquake in Tokyo, and the epicenter will be right under Category's bank. Now, Frog intends to prevent the earthquake, but he needs Kataguri's help to do it 
because it is going to require mortal combat with Worm. So, yeah, that's the setup for the story. Yeah, you got through a lot of pages here, but this is, after all, uh, Murakami's story. And the characters engaging with something strange is, in my exposure to the writer, it's what we're here for. I didn't know what Murakami's short fiction would be like, though I know that two of his stories have in the in the past few years been made into well-received films. And so, yeah, I'm really delighted by how quickly Murakami gets to the point here, as you put it. I do want to talk before I talk about this opening section a little bit. I want to talk about the earthquake business here because, you know, first of all, we're reading this story in a collection called After the Quake. And the quake that this story collection title is referring to uh, is an earthquake that took place in Kobe, Japan in 1995. This earthquake was devastating. It left at least 6,000 people dead. Almost 50,000 people were left homeless as a result. And the, the property damage was huge as well. So there's some context here to the conversation between Frog and Katagiri. Frog lets Katagiri know that this upcoming earthquake will be some high order of magnitude worse than the Kobe earthquake, but there's a way to prevent it. And of course, it's Murakami. The way to prevent this has to do with going down beneath the vault of the bank and doing battle with a worm. I mean, this text doesn't actually mention a vault to the bank, but the setup reminded me a little bit of W.E.B. Du Bois' story, The Comet, even though there are very few similarities between these stories otherwise. Yeah, just that they both have something to do with banks and, and going down. I think if you're going down, you assume there's a vault, right? That's Banks don't have basements, right? They have vaults, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, I have a few more things to say about, about this opening of the story here. There's a real irony in the way that Frog interacts with Katagiri and with what we learn throughout the unfolding of the story about the way that Katagiri goes about his business. We learn eventually the category is a pretty rough customer when it comes to getting the loans repaid to the bank. And there's a lot here in the story about the bank, the way it loans to known criminal organizations and expects category to clean up after the mess the bank makes. And I don't know much about the economic situation in Japan. I certainly don't know a lot about what was happening in Japan in 1995. Uh, but I've, this feels like a critique of the Japanese banking system to some degree. So we'll just leave it at that. Let's return to the irony, though, which I do have a, maybe a better <laughs> handle on as a reader. Uh, the irony between the juxtaposition of category and the frog. You know, Frog, I think, interacts with Katagiri in a way that lets us imagine how Katagiri interacts with his clients. You know, Frog shows up at the start of the story just inside of Katagiri's house, but he's polite and insistent at the same time. Frog's got a clear goal and ensures that Katagiri knows what that goal is and that they're going to work together to achieve that goal one way or another. So, right, the irony is that Frog is so intimidating to Katagiri, and then we meet Katagiri as this frightened, diminutive person, but then we learn that he really isn't that way as the story goes on. I mean, he can't change his height, but, um, you know, his, his, he's got a force of presence and personality. 
So the situation that we meet category in isn't the one that he'd be in normally in his life. So we meet category in a moment when he's responding to something really wild and something really outside of his normal uh, mundane mode of engagement in his job. So he's like caught on his back foot. Yeah, I think most of us would have a, a big mix of emotions upon coming home from work and discovering a giant talking frog <laughs> uh, making us tea in our kitchen, right? Like, you know, there'd be a lot of feelings like one, well, I, I was hoping to watch a ball game tonight or, you know, watch Alien for the 25, 2500th time, you know, crack a beer. That's what I was going to do by myself tonight. Now there's a frog I have to deal with or just anyone here I wasn't expecting. Also, I didn't know there were giant frogs that could talk. So something is wrong with the world or with me. I haven't been to the doctor in a while. I know I could be eating better, right? Those sorts of emotions. But then, yeah, Katagiri's also got this deal here where one of the questions he is is pondering is, is this someone or something that has been sent by some gang that I've been intimidating into making their their loan repayments? Because that is what Katagiri does for his day job. He wanders around Tokyo and beats up gangsters until they make their loan payments on time. And that's a pretty dangerous job. It's a super dangerous job. And I think it's just really funny because it feels, as you read the story, as you reread this story, it feels as though Frog is that part of category that we don't meet. But Frog has this hilarious line in the conversation where he basically says that he's just a frog and he's not a metaphor or an illusion or a deconstruction of some kind. And so what we see is this sort of resistance on Murakami's part to let the supernatural stand in for something at all for you know to let the unusual really be anything other than just a weird thing in the story i mean that's magical realism but i really think it's also part of murakami's charm as a writer the frog is an empty signifier at this point. And I've already filled the frog being here as being categories it or super ego or something. And, you know, if that's the case, then what is the worm? <laughs> There's just a lot going on here. There is. Yeah. So let's learn about the worm. And hey, worm is, well, a, a gigantic worm. Frog is a gigantic frog. Worm is a gigantic worm. Maybe frog is a big frog, but worm is definitely gigantic. And he lives underground. Now, the deal is that he mostly is asleep, and while he sleeps, he stores up all the vibrations of the earth inside his body, and there he converts them to rage, and when he is angry enough, he awakes and lets it all back out. And Frog wants to be clear that Worm is not evil, and that Frog himself bears no animosity toward Worm. It's just that Worm is going to destroy Tokyo in a few days, and that action needs to be stopped. The plan is that Frog and Category will go underground to Worm's cave and stop him. And the reason Frog has chosen Category is that Category is already used to superhero work. He works very hard, and he always puts the needs of others before his own needs. And he does all of that without recognition or gratitude. But still, he doesn't ever complain, either. And that's what Frog needs, because this is going to be a thankless job. No one will ever know that they have done it. Now, Frog doesn't need Category to do any fighting. What he needs is moral support. He needs Category's courage and his passion for justice. And Category will supply this by standing behind Frog and saying, Way to go, Frog! You're doing great! 
I know you can win. You're fighting the good fight. Naturally, as I think all of us would be, Category is skeptical of all this. So Frog offers to prove his bona fides to him by helping out with a repayment he's been having trouble collecting from a gang. And the next morning, when Category gets to work, he finds that the problem has indeed been taken care of for him by Frog. So now they drop a plan to go fight Worm, though to be clear, Category still not exactly enthusiastic about it. Yeah, we we learn apart from Worm a lot about Category in this section of the story. This is the section of the story, for instance, where we learn how tough Category is. But he's taken on this position at the bank of collecting the most difficult loans. And as you pointed out, Glenn, he's done his job without any real seeking or need for affirmation because he's doing this job or he's taking this job in order to care for his brother and sister, to care for their financial needs, to set them up with good situations in Japan. Um, But also he stayed at this job, maybe because he likes it to some degree. That's not explicit in the story. But the point that Frog makes about Katagiri isn't really about the degree to which Katagiri is able to derive pleasure from his lifestyle and work. Frog wants Katagiri to be his cheerleader because Katagiri has quietly endured so much and just on a temperamental level doesn't seem so interested in seeking anything in return. Life for Katagiri isn't about being recognized for excellence. Katagiri lives this kind of stoic existence. He does things well. He uses money only to get what he needs. His lifestyle displays that what he's doing is really about doing what's right to the best of his ability, because that is a way to live that displays worthiness to some degree, even if the only thing capable of recognizing your worthiness at the end of the day uh, is a potentially imaginary large frog. So Category goes on with his life, even though he wonders at times why he keeps on living at all. This is something he exclaims. And I guess Category exclaiming that he doesn't know why he keeps on living could be read as a sign of despair. I don't feel like Category's in despair, though. I think he's expressing doubt to Frog, that Frog has the right guy because Category views himself as less than ordinary. Right. Frog makes this big speech about how Category is essentially a superhero. He's got all the traits that superheroes have, but Category just is a guy with a job who started this job for reasons. You outlined what they were, Brandon, but those reasons don't really apply all that much anymore, but yet he's still doing it really just out of a sense of inertia, you know, maybe a sense of, well, uh, you know, laziness, right? Not wanting to figure out what he might go do instead of this or uh, wanting to figure out what he might actually really want out of life. I think that's really what is expressed in that in that line. That's what he's saying to Frog. You know, that I, I'm not doing anything super heroic here. I'm just inert. I'm just inert. I'm just doing a job. It's actually a pretty ugly job. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Category I think, does know that other people know that he's like the best at this job. And so he does take some satisfaction in that. We also see, I think, some from 
uh, frog in this section of the story. We learn a little bit about him or can glean some information about him uh, from what he says explicitly, but also through his interactions with Katagiri. You know, frog knows what he has to do because he has this sense that there are certain things that must be protected, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people senselessly losing their lives from a natural disaster that can be averted, uh, you know, you should avert the natural disaster if you can. You know, maybe we could say after the fact or looking at this situation from a different perspective that it might be better to find a way to stop Worm from absorbing so much hatred from the vibrations in the world around him. But Frog makes the point, kind of, that, hey, it's just in Worm's nature to absorb the vibrations this way and turn them into hatred. And maybe we shouldn't stop something from living in accordance with its nature. We step in, in Frog's opinion, in his kind of ethical argument here. It's right to step in only when one's nature threatens to supersede the lives of others. And so that's what Frog is doing. So, I mean, even though this situation is all really absurd and unbelievable, uh, there's some real crunchy philosophical ideas, I think, floating behind the structure of this story. And all of that crunchiness of ideas is something that is taking apart from the really strong character work that Murakami's doing here. I agree. Something that I really appreciated about this story is the way in which it uh, traffics in superhero tropes. And so we would expect that, you know, well, there's Frog, he's, he's super, he's the good guy, and he has to fight Worm. And Worm seems to be this kind of iconic villain, right? Who's just always there under the ground. And to think of Worm as being the nemesis of Frog and to see them as the forces of good and evil. But Frog is pretty insistent that that's not what's going on here, right? That that's not the type of cosmology behind any of this. And it's really challenging to our notions about what these types of stories ought to be. But it is all interwoven with all of this rich character stuff and and quite a bit of of humor. It's, It's all brilliantly done. Well, the final act of the story begins with this line. Unexpected things do happen, however. And the unexpected thing in this case is that right before Kataguri is returning to the bank to meet Frog so they can go fight Worm, someone shoots Kataguri. He wakes up in the hospital the next morning. He's missed his rendezvous with Frog. He's missed the fight. But he can see that Tokyo has not been destroyed. But the thing is, Kataguri wasn't shot. He's in the hospital because someone found him unconscious on the street. And the nurse tells him that while he was lying in bed last night, Kataguri kept shouting things like, Frog! Hey, Frog! And he did it a lot. That night, Frog comes to the hospital and he explains everything. Frog fought Worm and won, and that saved Tokyo. Though Frog was not able to completely defeat Worm, only to prevent the earthquake. But Frog did not do it alone. Category was there. He was there in his dreams, helping Frog exactly as they'd planned. And now, Frog is very tired, and he wants to take a nap in Category's hospital room. And he also says that he feels like his brain is growing muddy, and that he is slowly returning to the mud. When Frog falls asleep, his body convulses, and then just kind of explodes, and a bunch of worms and maggots come out of his body. 
and they get everywhere and Category freaks out. And then the nurse comes in and turns on the light and it was all a dream. A Category explains that Frog saved everyone from the earthquake, but now he's gone and he'll never come here again. He also tells the nurse that he was fonder of Frog than anybody. And then he sinks into a restful, dreamless sleep. And that's the end of the story. The category gets to experience some real contentment <laughs> at the end of the story. And, and, that, and that's a nice ending for Katagiri. But there's a real lingering question about the degree to which Katagiri is a hero or which any of this stuff actually happened. You know, we just don't know. We'll talk about that, obviously. But as Frog says when he quotes Joseph Conrad, uh, true terror is the kind that men feel toward their imagination. So even in this section, Frog is invoking the imagination as the space where which this story is taking place. Frog mentions that the battle actually took place in imagination as, quote, that is the precise location of all our battlefield. And, and what he means by that is another big question. So even the very real non-metaphorical, non-allegorical frog, you know, invokes the imagination in this tale in relation to one's engagement with reality. Or maybe we should say that to some degree, it looks like imagination forms our reality in, in the way Murakami is presenting the story. Frog dies in a pretty repulsive way. And he releases, as you point out, Glenn, the maggots and worms and centipedes and slime. But right before Frog dies, Katagiri promises Frog that he's going to read these books by Dostoevsky and Tolstoy that showcase empathy towards those in wretched circumstances or towards those who are wretched and despairing themselves. Great works by Russian writers. And this feels like the climax of the story. The way this story plays out makes me feel when I got to this point as though Category promising to read these works is what finally lets Frog go and disintegrate. You know, like the point of Frog showing up may not have been to defeat Worm and to have bring Category into this battle, but to just recommend some good books. And then he turns into a worm himself. And there's this weird <laughs> visual that we're left with. Yeah, this is a really elaborate way to get your friend to join a book club. I, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. In fact, I, it's actually the secret origin of the podcast is us dressing up in costumes. But uh, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm looking forward to thinking about you know what's going on with that. But also, as you said, of course, we are going to have to, well, think about what's real in this story and wonder whether anything is magical. And I suspect that we might end up using the term magical realism once or twice in the discussion as well. So before we get there, I actually would like to remind listeners who enjoy magical realism that, hey, uh, we do a Neil Gaiman podcast on the network as well. Uh, my co-host Brent Helt and I are in the middle of Sandman Season of Mist right now, but we have covered a fair amount of Gaiman's short fiction as well. And I would like to point to two episodes that I would recommend for people who like Murakami or magical realism more broadly. The first is Chivalry, and the second is October in the Chair. These are both just masterpiece stories, and Brent and I had a lot of fun covering them. Uh, the name of the show is Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast, and there's a link in the show notes to make finding it easy for you. As we're recording this, Gaiman has re-entered the zeitgeist with the success of Sandman on Netflix, and Glenn and Brent do such an awesome job uh, just 
understanding where Gaiman is coming from with just his writing style, his allusions, his influences. And uh, there's not a better guide out there through Sandman uh, and the works of Neil Gaiman than, than hanging out with the Dream King. So you should absolutely check it out if this sort of thing interests you or you've been captivated by the Netflix series Sandman. Let, let's return to, to Murakami, though, who I guess, uh, I don't know, is always on the edge of the zeitgeist, perhaps, and return to this story by thinking about, you know, what's real and what's imaginary. And so with Frog saying he's not a metaphorical figure, that he's really real, and then at the end of the story, having all this stuff about the imagination, I just have to ask you whether or not you felt as though Frog is real. Is there evidence that Frog is real or is he merely a product of Category's imagination? Right. I don't have a definitive answer on on this question, even though I knew it was going to be a question you would ask because it's <laughs> the question, right, that anyone's going to get started thinking about this story. So evidence that Frog is definitely not real is that uh, the nurse doesn't see him in the in the room right and no one else seems to to see him but we do have you know frog prove to category that he is real by taking care of this situation for him right category goes to sleep at night he gets up in the morning he goes to his office and then gets a phone call from the gangster that has been visited by frog and clearly says don't send that frog to us again you know you'll have the payment tomorrow right we're you know we're gonna we're gonna play ball here and so that's meant to be right the evidence that frog is real but of course we still only get that from categories perspective so if all of this is going on you know frog exists only in categories imagination this phone call might as well and i think we could easily see a kind of fight club thing happening here right where in the middle of the night it was category who i don't know dressed up like a frog or something you know or called himself the frog and went and beat up some gangster <laughs> to get the loan repayment right that there are ways that i think that we could deconstruct even the best evidence for the existence of Frog. On the other hand, I want to believe Frog when he says he's real, that he's not a metaphor, that he's not imagination. But really, I guess, Brandon, what I'm getting at is I want to know what you think. Well, I think it's one of the real powers of Murakami's writing that he's able to generate these sort of empty signifiers in, in the magical elements of his world and leave us wondering what's real and what's not because what's real is the effect of these encounters and that has enough power that's explored well enough to get us to accept being unsettled by the encounter with the unreal or the magical itself. I mean, Frog himself is such a strange character. He says he has the power of the unfrog in him. And there's all this stuff that seems like archetypal and unreal and metaphorical. And then he says, yeah, I'm none of those things. I'm just a really big frog who's, uh, you know, protecting Tokyo and maintaining the order of things that you rely upon in your mundane life. And there's just so much going on in this story that you see, I think, repeated throughout Murakami's works, if you've read more of his stuff. Um, and it's the stuff that I go to Murakami for like once every four or five years, I guess, which means I've read, you know, this is like the third thing of Murakami's that I've read. So I don't need Frog to be real. And I think that that's a real strength of, of the writing here, that you don't need him to be real. You need to accept the character's 
encounters with the Sunreal world. And it could be that Katagiri has dressed up as Frog or taken the moniker of Frog and gone and, and dealt with gangsters and in this way that has left an impact. But we know that the effect of Frog is real in Katagiri's life. And I, I think that's that's what matters. The way that our imagination, our beliefs form our engagement with the world. I mean, I want to tug on this thread a little bit that you brought up that I hadn't really thought too much about, which is the superhero element of this story that I think blends really well with this imagination concept that so much of the story feels grounded to the degree that Murakami can pull off this line, unexpected things do happen when everything that's happened so far is unexpected, right? But the need to believe that the bad things that happen in our world, even natural disasters, are the result of the secret battles that we're always on the edge of discovering. I mean, I wonder how that worked for you in this story and if it speaks at all to you about the core fantasy behind the superhero stories. Yeah, I think the the superhero-ness of this story perhaps seemed more prevalent to me than than to you. I think I spend more time in the superhero genre uh, more generally than than you do. In fact, even had a, an X-Men uh, episode on Atos come out uh, last week. And so for me, that was really at the, the foreground of the story. And in particular, Super Frog read to me a lot like Superman, classic, real classic Superman, maybe less like Superman is written today, but Superman of really kind of certainly the golden age comics and maybe silver age comics as well. And category then comes across very much to me like Jimmy Olsen. And I guess part of what I mean by this is that, you know, Super Frog, although he claims that he's not a a metaphor, right, that he is really just a frog, he still seems like he is the embodiment of, or the anthropomorphization of, or personification of some abstract virtues, right? The the types of virtues that he ascribes to category himself. He, Frog, also is the representation, the personification of those things in the same way that that's what Superman is, right? Superman is not just a person who's got some special abilities. Superman is wholly different from us. He is better than us in his very nature. You know, as he's you know comes comes to fruition in the, the the golden and silver age anyway, and so that was how I was reading Frog as kind of a a silly take on Superman. Uh, like, yeah, what if what if this was a thing that really existed in the world, but he's actually just a big frog? How would we react to him? That's such a fascinating take on this story. I mean, it didn't it didn't even occur to me. I, I really encountered this story as something having to do with. Um, this imagination taking over this fantasy about being able to stop the worst from happening and that the worst things in the world are really the result of these creatures that are just under the earth that need to exist because something needs to absorb our our worst impulses and our hatreds and our resentments and that once in a while something needs to step in to stop the worst from happening and whether that's self-discipline or we imagine heroes that can do that to give us a sense of hope you know the the role that imagination plays with our encountering of the the worst that are uh, culture has to offer, uh, which often comes to us in the form of stories that like, I totally missed the superhero element, even though it's called super frog. 
But that's also interesting in and of itself because Frog insists on just being called Frog. And in the way that you read the story, it would be like Jimmy Olsen encountering Superman in his apartment and Superman saying, you need to just call me man. I'm just man. You know, I'm not, I'm not, don't call me Mr. Man or Superman. I'm man, you know, and there's this whole other layer there. I think that your reading of the story brings that I just completely missed. Well, that that humility or that humbleness is is a characteristic of Superman, of course, as well, and certainly you know the 1950s version of Superman, anyway. And yeah, I, that's something an element there that uh, exists in Frog that made me really thinking about uh, you know that had me really thinking about Superman this week. And also, just to be fair, Superman is on my mind a lot because Finch wears Superman pajamas, and we listen to the John <laughs> Williams music like all the time. So you know, it's 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 where I am right now. Yeah, I think, I mean, but I think you're capturing something that is is probably an overlap of both our encounters of the story, which is that that functioning of something bigger and better than us that can really stop the worst from happening that relies on us in some weird way. You know, there's always a panel in a Superman comic of people cheering Superman on and just being in awe of him or something like that. And the story is kind of playing with the idea of like, well, what if that's what Superman really needs to not lose heart, to just be reminded that once in a while that what he's doing matters, even if some of what he does is in secret. This also brought to mind for me something that Neil Gaiman does quite a bit, especially in The Sandman and American Gods, though there are other places as well where he does this, which is to ascribe the the powers of supernatural beings to the belief in them by regular people like us, which is to say that, yes, gods and superheroes can exist in the world, but their powers come from our belief in them. It's not that our belief in them derives from their existence or the testimony of their power. No, it's that they get their power from our belief in us. It's the power of our belief. And I had that feeling that that's what Frog is like here, right? That Frog is actually just some frog who lived in a maybe a park in Tokyo or on the outskirts of Tokyo somewhere and was turned into this super frog to come save the day because of some kind of, I don't know, Jungian numinous thing happening in the subconsciousness of the inhabitants of Tokyo or maybe even of all Japan that they need someone to protect them from worm. But then even in the moment of the fight, Frog is going to need a sort of, you know, a, a, a power up, a power re-up, I guess, right? In the middle of that fight, that's going to have to come from someone who believes in him and that that's what category is going to be for. This is, I think, one of the places where I was seeing some parallels with, you know, the way that Neil Gaiman writes magical realism as well. I wonder if they're both drawing on the the Buddhist concept of the tulpa, which is this. Well, I think Gaiman is explicitly. I don't know if Murakami does, but just this idea that um, things are given reality by our by our belief in them, and you know, that's what a tulpa is. Anyway, that's a super. There's a supernatural episode about that if you want to engage with that at all. Uh, but also, yeah, it just fiction in, in fiction, it's such a powerful idea because fiction is something that 
pricks our imagination to belief in in just brief moments or sometimes gets us to think about things for long spells or has profound impacts on us that do it does change our engagement with the world when we encounter an idea or a being or something like that in a story that um, changes us and so yeah I really like this this concept that you're talking about here we should we should talk about the worm a little bit as well i mean a frog is uh, a tulpa like figure is the worm this worm to me really felt like uh a embodiment of humanity's evils and resentments and things like that but what did worm feel like to you in this story are we to take worm as a non-metaphor as well well, I think if if frog is real, then then worm also has to be real. And but but yes, certainly. I mean, even the description that frog gives us of worm is that worm is our anger, right? It's our our rage. I mean, you know, the way that frog is describing this is really you know, physics, right? That there's movement in the ground because of, you know, the tectonic plates and so on, and that that gets consumed by worm as a kind of rage, a kind of anger. But I think there is definitely this sense in the way that Frog is describing that as well, that worm is absorbing all of our negativity also. And so, you know, there's some sense in which then worm is kind of a receptacle for the worst impulses that we have, the worst feelings that we have, that one of the ways that we're able to exorcise those feelings without acting on them is that they go out into the ether and end up in worm in some way. But the catch is that worm explodes with that every once in a while in the form of an earthquake. And so there's a, a price for that. That's a pretty cool concept in, in itself. It is a really cool concept in itself. And I love the way that Frog says, this thing has a right to exist. In fact, maybe we need a creature like this to absorb these things. But there's almost this sense then that we get that humanity's own negative energies and vibrations have grown exponentially and are just having this terrible chain reaction effect. And I wonder if you saw Murakami maybe commenting on that to some degree in this story as well. Yeah, I think that could very well be the case. I mean, one of the things that is happening, you know, in the 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 world in the 20th century is simply a massive explosion in population, which means that in absolute terms there's more human emotion in the world and a lot of it is negative. There might also be some commentary here that uh, the creation of of high modernity and and even getting postmodern uh, that means that we actually all have more negative emotions than perhaps our ancestors did because we have more stressors I mean, we are all of us, every single one of us, at least a little bit living in a Kafka-esque nightmare every moment of our lives. And that that's not, <laughs> those, those feelings we have about that have to go somewhere, right? So yeah, that might be something that, that Murakami is, is addressing here. Well, I don't, I don't really have too much else to say about this story. I found this story to be very pleasingly, characteristically Murakami. It's got this richest this richness to it that's found within, you know, the combination of simple sentences and complex ideas. And so I, I want to take a minute just to talk about our experience with, with Murakami before we move on and see if we have any uh, overlap or see any com commonalities between what we've read of him 
and what we see him have and what we see of him in the story. So, Glenn, have you read much Murakami in the past? I'm afraid you're not only going to have to do all the heavy lifting here, Brandon, you're going to have to do all of the lifting. <laughs> I, I have read zero Murakami until this point. I have been aware of his existence only really recently, and that's because I see him discussed from time to time on social media. But I couldn't actually name anything that he's written outside of you know the volume after the quake that we've had in front of us. And so I was super grateful for the opportunity to read Murakami. I thought this story was awesome and I I want to read more, so I hope we'll get a chance to do more. But, but you have read some, so t- tell me about that. Yeah, like I said, Murakami is the type of writer who's like flavor I crave every couple years or so. And just, I need to read Murakami. He's the only person who writes like him that I found. And um, so I've read the Wind Up Bird Chronicle and I've read 1Q84 and and now this story, 1Q84 took me a, uh, a while to read. That's like a tome, you know, it's like 900 plus pages and it's really excellent. But I, what I love about Murakami are, are, are some of the elements that we find in this story. Some I've just mentioned, his ability to combine uh, simple descriptive prose uh, with really complicated ideas at times to ask the reader to take really fantastic things at face value. Um, but then he always has this everyman character, a really efficient and competent man who's competency is wasted to some degree, who's looking for an escape of some kind. Uh, Someone who is defined by the needs of his society. And so he finds his meaning and his place ultimately in a sort of fantasy, slightly skewed version of the world. Um, That is either real or rooted in his imagination, though it's very hard to tell. And so, yeah, I found this story to be really... Uh, uh, you know, characteristically, as I've said, Murakami. And so, Glenn, yeah, if you like those elements of the story, I think you'll find a lot to like, particularly in Wind Up Bird Chronicle, but then really in a vastly expanded sense in, in 1Q84, which has little people and stuff in it. Well, maybe I should just uh, take the opportunity to read one of those for for ATOS just uh, on my own. I think that would be a lot of fun because I did really, really love this story. You you also mentioned earlier, Brandon, that there are some uh, recent film adaptations that I also am unaware of. What are those? Those are uh, a film. One is a film called Burning that came out, I think, in 2018. And then in 2021, a film came out called Drive My Car. I think both of these are in more of his, you know, realist camp of storytelling, but I'm not sure they've been on my list to watch. And I just have not found two and a half hours of time to sit down and watch a movie <laughs> since my kid was born. That's not true. I did watch house of wax, uh, on vacation, the 2005 version starring Chad, Michael Murray. Don't judge me. It's what I did. But, um, yeah, other than that, I haven't found too much time to, to find those two and a half hours to watch one of these great, really they're well-reviewed adaptations of these Murakami stories. Yes, I think vacation, <laughs> when you have a, a little child, is uh, a time when you actually need to watch mindless, uh, utterly mediocre horror movies and not something not something that's actually good, right? But you're, you're yes, trying exactly. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually don't care if you judge me. It's just something I feel I have to say after every time I mention I've watched House of Wax recently, uh, a movie that should otherwise probably have been forgotten, but... Yeah, I'm keen on finding those types of movies and watching them. 
Well, on that sad note, we should probably bring this episode to a close. So that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And that includes the Neil Gaiman podcast that I do with Brent Held called Hanging Out with the Dream King. So if you're interested in hearing more about magical realism or the numinous power of belief, I hope you'll check out that show. Next time, we'll be back here with the next installment of Voice of the Fire by Alan Moore. This time, it's going to be the chapter entitled The Head of Diocletian. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.